and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquet-Paz. On each episode of our show, we'll speak with top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Esther Duflo, professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a member of the editorial committee of the Annual Review of Economics. Professor Duflo is also the co-founder and director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, the inaugural holder of the international chair Knowledge Against Poverty at the Collège de France, and a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. In 2008, The Economist named her one of the bright young things in international economics, someone whose career is set to make a big splash in the field. Dr. Esther Duflo went on to win the John Bates Clark Medal in 2010 for her work in development economics, an honor thought by many to preview future Nobel Prizes. Hello and welcome to our show, um, Professor Duflo. Uh, would you would you please explain your methods in in a few words? And um, if you if you would you know just mention what the most surprising results uh, that you've already obtained in your research would be. Um, so, the objective of 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 our work is to try and find out uh, what works and what doesn't to fight poverty or to fight the problems that are associated with poverty. And uh, we do this by using randomized control trials, which are inspired by the, um, the way you test the effectiveness of, of medicines. So the way it works is that, suppose for example, that you want to know uh, the effect of um, putting computers in classrooms to help students to learn. Then you could um, put computers in half of um, the schools in the city that you would randomly select and not put them in the other half. And then for a year or maybe two, compare the results uh, of, the, um, of the students in both classrooms. And then if it works, then you could extend the program to all the classes that that have that had pre- previously not been included. So I think we get a number of surprising results, uh, surprising results about things that work extremely well that you wouldn't necessarily expect, or surprising results that of things that do, don't work as well as you expect. Uh, the most surprising result I have in my mind at the moment is actually not um, a result that I obtain. It's a result that. Uh, Michael Kramer uh, at Harvard and Ted Miguel at Berkeley obtained uh, very recently, which I find fascinating is, in 1999, they started working in Kenyan school to deworm children, that is to treat them for schistosomiasis or or, uh, hookworm or other kind of intestinal worms that students suffer from. It's an amazingly cheap thing to do. It costs about 60 cents per child per year. So they did that in 1999. In 2003, they had a first paper showing that um, the kids who were um, dewormed, so they they did a randomized evaluation where they had three groups of schools. Uh, A first group of schools got dewormed in 98, a second group in 99, and a third group in 2000. In 2000, they collected data, and they already found that kids who were already dewormed were doing better in school, were more likely to be present in school than other kids. Of course, they, of course, they were less likely to have worms and to be anemic and stuff like that. That was already very interesting. But recently, they came up with another paper where they had followed those kids into adulthood. So the kids are now 20, 25, 
And what they find is that the kids who were dewormed for three years instead of one uh, are earn on average 23% more every year than the kids who were dewormed one year. And that, I think, is amazingly surprising because it's such a small investment and something that you would feel is not you know, particularly exciting or important compared to all the big problems in Kenya. But we don't know of anything else, really, that can increase uh, earnings by that much. So that's the most surprising result I have seen lately, and I think that's a spectacularly important uh, piece of research they have done. It is fascinating, and, 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 and it's interesting to, to see how, how this is going to be uh, followed through by the government. Are there programs being implemented um, to dewarm children on a regular basis now? Right, so that's a very good question. So actually, on the basis of the schooling results, um, uh, the Poverty Action Lab and an organization that was started at Davos a few years ago called Dewarm the World, had already started working with um, with different governments around the world to uh, promote regular dewarming. And Kenya has now a dewarming program. So actually, all of the children of Kenya are now dewarmed on a regular basis. So on on the basis of this you know, advocacy that was done on the basis of Kramer and Miguel first uh, study. And uh, uh, the state of Bihar in India is about to start a regular dewarming program of about 10 million children. Um, starting in the next few months. Uh, it must feel like a small victory there. Economics was not your first love. Um, I was wondering what about it um, ended up catching your interest. So I was also to be a historian. Uh, I was interested in, in, in history as an academic discipline. But on the side, I've always been interested in the poor and in trying to help the poor. And I kind of always had this bleeding heart uh, streak in me. And I, I was a little bit dissatisfied by the fact that my academic career was somewhat disconnected from this interest I had in sort of trying to be useful and do something meaningful with my life. And then I realized by starting to work with economists when I was spent a year in Russia that actually by doing economics I could have an academic career that would lead me to work on these meaningful subjects. And that's when I decided to become an economist. So why did microeconomics make more sense for what you were trying to achieve? And what was your colleague's reaction when you decided to shift your focus away from macroeconomics? Well, with macroeconomics, you're trying to answer like the big questions. You're trying to answer, you know, why are there economic crises or why are some countries growing and some countries are not growing at the macro level? And I think if you could answer this question, that would be very great and very important because those are important questions. But for me, I just uh, lost the perception of uh, of the answer. I thought that you know microeconomics is very difficult because we have we don't have very many countries and we don't have very much time that we can look at so there is too much is happening at the same time and when we are looking at the trajectories of different countries over time it's very difficult to know whether uh, they have followed that trajectory because of something that they did, something specific that they did, or because of something else that you don't really, that happened at the same time and you don't really take into account. So that's why I thought that that macro was not going to help me give specific answers to problems that, that I could 
understand and were well designed and and I shift my emphasis to to micro where the questions are maybe smaller but at least we know how to get there so it was interesting because since I'm French when when I studied in France everybody was studying macro so I was studying macro as well but when I arrived at MIT I discovered development economics and I took the classes from Abhijit Banerjee and I decided that that was the way to go and I was telling my my professors that, oh, I'm going to do micro in the end. And they were laughing, saying that, oh, general equilibrium is too difficult for you. Because macro thinks in terms of general equilibrium, that is all of the markets together. And I said, yes, that's true. General equilibrium is too too hard for me. I want to focus on partial equilibrium. Small, well-defined question that I can actually bring an answer to. Some say your work pertains less to economics than, than activism. Wh- what do you think they mean by this? And, and how do you respond to this? You know, economics is a pretty imperialistic discipline. So I think economics is what economists happen to be doing at that time. So I'm not particularly uh, bothered by definitional issues one way or the other. Uh, As long as there are people who are interested in what I do and and, uh, who find that it brings something, then that's great. If people want to call it something else in economics, that doesn't particularly trouble me. Uh, as long as my students can get jobs in economics department and earn a living, then that's all fine. So even even development economics uh, economists, sorry, uh, resisted your work, saying that one shouldn't experiment on people. How did you address those concerns? Oh, there are very few economists, development economists, who says one shouldn't experiment on people. I think, like as soon as you are an academic and working in the academic field, like for academics, there is absolutely no problem with the idea that. That, exper- that you could work with human subjects because that's a, you know, that's a fundamental tenet of, of science. Like there would be no science, there would be no progress possible in medicine, there would be no prog- progress possible, in my view, in the social sciences if we couldn't experiment with, um, with people because at the end of the day, uh, policies is constantly experimenting with people. It's just that you are not learning from it. So structuring this process to learn something from it actually helps us probably do less harm in terms of experiments that are not controlled and not taken into account. The The thing that needs to be, to be done is to make sure that these experiments are conducted in a way that respects the human subjects. And the, the international community, scientific community has a set of very clear guidelines about how do you ensure that. And, Every research needs to go through a human subject committee in in the home country of the researcher and in the country where it's carried out and and this is this is done and what this human subject committee are ensuring is that nobody who participates in your experiment is worse off as a result of participating so people sometimes are uncomfortable about the idea that there is a control group that doesn't get the program, but what you have to take into account is that in the absence of the program, in the absence of the studies, nobody would get anything. So you never take away from someone. You always add something to someone. And the question is whether what you add is positive or negative, and you don't carry out research where it would be negative. So you have clear limits, ethical limits to your work. Um, 
you, you know, you, you mentioned a committee, an ethical committee evaluating every single study. You you start at um, at the uh, Abdul Latif Jamil uh, Poverty Action Lab. Uh, how does this function exactly? How how do they work? So before you you start touching a human subject, before you start uh, your research, you need to write down a proposal that you send to the to a to a committee of people who are uh, um, made made constituted from several disciplines plus a few people who are not academics themselves, and they are e evaluating the proposal on the basis of. Number one, what are the potential benefits to humanities if the research is carried out? So if the research is useless, then there is no reason carrying it out. And number two, but more important, is uh, what are the potential risks to anybody who is involved? Number three, are people aware that they participate in an experiment? Do, do they have a chance to say no? So you submit your protocol uh, and then you they meet you know regularly once a month they ask you some additional question occasionally ask you to change the protocol and then give their approval and on and then you and then you can carry out the research so this ensures that you don't do anything you do is being looked at by uh, many pairs of eyes that have no interest in the in the research and can stop you if there is something that you shouldn't be doing um, the field of randomization in economics is expanding quite quickly. Um, what do you attribute this to, and how do you see it evolve? So randomization is a is a is a beautiful tool, and I think this is why it's expanding. And it's it's expanding in 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 the field of development, but it's also expanding in other fields. Like for example, um, uh, the the company Yahoo and Google and Amazon now are conducting experiments all the time uh, using the internet. They are con conducting very large-scale experiments that, uh, um, on, the, uh, on the basis of their platforms. And there are many economists at Yahoo and Google who are working with them on those experiments. So the concept of experiments is, 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 is growing, you know, and the use of experiment is growing, not only in development, but everywhere. Uh, as well, and it's also coming back to the study of social program in the in the U.S. So I think the reason why it grows is that it's useful. People find it useful as uh, uh, you know one more tool, one more measurement technique in our apparatus of things that we use in economics. And uh, the, I think the reason why it wasn't used as much before before is that people had in mind that. If you wanted to do a randomized experiment, it had to be a very large-scale trial, very, very expensive, that could only be done maybe by governments. And I think what has happened in, in the field of development, which is now coming back here, is you realize that experiments can be relatively cheap, relatively nimble, and can uh, don't have to be only done for large, very expensive program, that you can also do them uh, in the context of a research project to answer a very specific question. You were talking earlier about having this bleeding heart streak. Um, I'm curious about how you were first confronted to poverty. So I my my mother is a is a pediatrician and she was involved in an NGO uh, who works with uh, children victims of war. 
actually she is still involved with that, N with that NGO, very involved with that NGO. So when we were growing up, she was going to various countries, like, you know, a couple of weeks at a time or, or, or three or four weeks at a time to visit the project of that NGO. And she would tell us, the kids, that, oh, this is, you know, this is your contribution to to this problem, you are letting me go for some time and you are sharing me with, uh, with the other kids. And she would come back and show us some slides, slideshows, pictures of where she had been, what she had seen. And I think that gave me very early on a sense that there was a, a, a world out there that was extremely different from the one where I lived. And that I was extremely fortunate to have been born where I was born and that some responsibility came with that luck. And were you involved as, as a, maybe a teenager, a child, a young person in, in, um, in charitable organizations helping the poor? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was um, you know, a Girl Scout and doing various things in this context so from the age of like seven or eight. Uh, and then as a teen, I was working for uh, an organization called Resto du Coeur that was delivering meals to kids, to to old, to poor people around Christmas. I wasn't doing much of it at all. I've, you know, I've done it like around Christmas a couple of times. And then I was working for uh, another one called Armée du Salut a little later, like at, at night. was also going to, uh, when I was about... 19 going to prison once a week to help people writing letters that kind of things so nothing like huge uh, nothing that it wasn't consummating my life i had a you know i had a perfectly normal growing up life on the side of it but i was kind of trying and trying to do something the the un was hoping to to have the number of people who suffer from extreme poverty and hunger by 2015 compared with 1990 figures they seem pretty confident that this goal will be reached. Um, how do how do you read this? How do you how do you understand this? So it's one of many goals, right? It's one of the what they call the Millennium Development Goals. Um, so it's the first one, reduce poverty and hunger. But then there are there is a goal on education. There are goals on health, uh, maternal and child health. There are goals on the environment. There are goals on uh, on in, you know inclusion of 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 poor countries in the world economy, etc. And if you look at all the goals globally, I think we are going to succeed some and, and fail some. Uh, what is sad about those goals is not that so much that we are going to succeed on some and fail on some, is that people have lost interest in them for the most part. When I say people, I'm saying, the, you know, the media. And it is not something that... that captures people's imagination anymore. When it, when it was launched, I think it was ambitious and at the same time it could have been achieved. And it set a number, it set an objective for for the world. And that was a good thing. But after that, it sort of lost focus because it became kind of a rhetorical device that every you know, NGO proposal for funding starts with the Millennium Development Goals and every government speech starts with the government Millennium Development Goals. But if we are going to achieve some of them, it's going to be mainly because of the success of China and India 
who presumably would have achieved them anyway and therefore it has failed to uh, become something sufficiently concrete for all of the goals to be oriented towards them and i think the problem is that um it was not they were set up as a set of goals maybe a little bit over ambitious and there has not been enough of a reflection of how do we get there what are the how do we make these things happen? What is going to work towards achieving those goals and and put the emphasis on that? So 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 poverty in itself is just not disappearing um, in 2015. Is that is that correct? Is that what your interpretation is that more needs to be done, more programs need to be to be created? Yeah, I think the the medium development goal is like a glass half empty for the most part in terms of the achievement. We might achieve the poverty goal. Uh, but that would be pretty much mechanical consequences of India and China becoming uh, less poor. And we're going to fail on many of the other ones. And also on many aspects that were not particularly emphasizing the goal, but are important anyway. Like, for example, you mentioned education. I think we're going to achieve the minimum development goal or getting close to achieving in terms of getting very many kids in schools, which is the actual goal. But since a lot of these kids are learning nothing when they're in school, it's not clear that we are learning all that much at the end. So is, is the idea of, of, of poverty evolving? And, and how is it evolving? I don't know if it's evolving still. <laughs> I think uh, uh, it has evolved I think, with the, with the uh, important and positive influence of Amartya Sen, which was which led us to think about poverty as a multi-dimensional phenomenon. So poverty is not only the lack of income, but it's, you know, the inability of realizing your potential as a human being. So it's lack of education, it's poor health, it's like uh, lack of rights if you're a woman, uh, etc., etc. And that took some years to catch on as an idea, but now I think it's very much ingrained and rightly so, it's an important idea. So whether we're still evolving from there, I don't know, but maybe we are evolved where we need to be anyway in terms of thinking about poverty in this in this broad way. What are the main challenges right now in, in fighting poverty, you know, just kind of moving away from 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 the UN's goal for 2015? Well, they remain the, the the same, right? The getting it's in a sense they are still the, the millennium development goals. Broadly speaking, at a broad level, were probably the right one, which is you know get people an education, except it should be a quality education. Get people decent healthcare. Get people uh, access to the the health technology that we know are effective. Um, get people to adopt uh, more productive agricultural techniques. I think a big challenge coming forward is going to be, it's going to be food, and it's going to be the pro- the production of food and uh, and 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 the the remuneration of 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 agricultural work, etc. So adoption of better technology that maintain the planet better and at the same time are more productive. Um, I think a big challenge is less that we don't know what to do but that we don't know how to do it for example i think we 
we know that kids should be immunized and yet something like you know millions of kids don't get immunized every year so a big challenge is how do we organize systems uh, health systems that deliver immunization in a consistent ba uh, basis to everyone uh, in schools i think we also start to understand what are the right pedagogical tool to to help kids to learn better uh, like emphasis on the basic and drilling and 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 uh, teaching kids what they don't know as opposed to, you know at the level at which they can learn as opposed to what you wish they would know and yet we don't have education system in developing countries that are able to to deliver that and to something to large extent in developed countries as well so i think this is maybe the biggest challenge is how do we move from the frontier what we know should work to something that is actually that we are able to deliver to everyone and this is where your research and your work um, comes in, figuring out how to how to fix those those problems um, on a small smaller scale. Well, in a in a large part, in a large part, this is about that. Some some of my work is about you know more trying to figure out what's the right pedagogy or what's the what or, or or things like that. But in a large part, it's it's indeed about that. It's indeed about we are well within. We could do so much better. And how do we reorganize things such that we can we do do a little bit better? Okay. Um. Just to come back to your work for a second, uh, I, I was just wondering about the theoretical frame of your research. Uh, can you tell us more about that? So I am kind of. Standing on the shoulders of on the shoulders of giants, uh, uh, which are like kind of the the um, uh, people who established uh, development economics as a field and continue to grow it as a uh, on the theoretical basis. So starting with Ted Schulz, who was a Nobel Prize winner uh, and whose uh, Nobel Prize lecture was the economics of being poor. Ted Schulz was protesting against the what was the dominant current at the time in on sociology and a little bit in the social sphere as well, which is to say, well, the poor are just like kind of not like us. They have cultural problems. They maybe they are not as smart, etc. And he was saying, no, the poor are just like us, except they are they have less, so they cannot make as good. Uh, they cannot uh, put fertilizer because they have no money to buy the fertilizer, but otherwise they are just like us. So his view was poor. His, the phrase that he was using was poor but efficient. I think it was very important as a methodological stance because it was emphasizing that there is no way to think about the poor any differently than the rich. We just have to think of them as the same kind of human being as us and understand how poverty means that they have different outcomes in life. That said, from there, we moved one step and to say, oh, well, but being poor maybe changes uh, the set of opportunities that people have. Because in an environment where information is not perfect, for example, nobody will lend you money unless you have some collateral and the poor have no collateral. So being poor means that you can't borrow as much. So, for example, if you have a great idea to start a business, you can't start a business because you don't get financing for it. So the work of Sen and then uh, Stiglitz and Abhijit Banerjee helped us understand that uh, you might be inefficient because you are poor. There are things that you should be able to achieve that you can't achieve because you are poor. And then the third step of that is um, the advent of uh, behavioral economics or the interplay between economics and, and psychology, 
where um, uh, we now understand that being poor also changes how you decide. For example, people who decide under stress make worse decisions because stress pro- le- leads your body to produce cortisol. And when we have cortisol in the body, we don't decide as well. Like our brain is a little bit clouded, etc., etc. And so now, and so on the basis of these three steps is where my work is located. Uh, what are you working on right now? So I'm working on, uh, on several things at the same time, uh, uh, as usual, at various steps. But one of the things I'm working on is we just got uh, data from um, uh, a follow-up that we did of several thousand uh, teenagers who were in school a few years ago, uh, five, six years ago in Kenya, when we uh, worked with the government to study different HIV AIDS prevention strategy uh, in schools. So one of them was a teacher training program in the in the national curriculum. One of them was to give students uniforms so that they could stay in school longer. And then we had the combination of the two. And we, for the last two years, three years, we've been following these kids all over Kenya, where they happen to be. And we managed to find find a lot of them, uh, about 80% of them. And we are now looking at the at the results. We have tested them for HIV and also for uh, HSV2, which is another sexually transmitted diseases. Um, and we are looking at the results and trying to understand them. So that's one of the work that I'm doing at the moment. Whose work are you are you interested in right now? Um, so as you know, the one person who has influenced me the most is uh, is Abhijit Banerjee. So I always follow whatever he does. But we do a lot of work together. Uh, but he's he's more of a theorist, so I I always follow his work. Um, I find the work of Sandil Munainathan, uh, who is um, int- uh, someone who does behavioral economics and psychology, very uh, interesting. I I all. You know, always read the work of Amartya Sen as a kind of source of inspiration, and then there is uh, the work, and then there is the work of like, you know, dozens of of, of people where there is one one article that is interesting, etc. The one what makes it very exciting to be a development economist at the moment is that actually there are many many people who are doing just very very interesting work, and that together all of this work starts to give us a very good sense about what it means to be poor and therefore what it means to fight poverty. And therefore, more than like one or two people, I would like to kind of acknowledge the the, the field as a whole, as a, uh, an extremely dynamic uh, people building on each other on the work um, in, a, in a way that I think was less the case um, 10 years ago, and I think, I hope it's going to be even more the case 10 years from now. You have been working on a book. Can you tell us more about this? Uh, right. So the book is uh, going to be out in April. It's a joint book with Abhijit Banerjee. It's called uh, Poor Economics, um, a Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty. And in this book, what we are trying to do is really to take all of the research that uh, many other people have conducted. It's not merely about our research. Our research is a small part of it, although it's of course present. And we are trying to get to try to understand subject by subject, you know, 
food, education, health, savings, credit. Why it, what is the key problem in this particular area? Why are things the way they are and how could they be better and what can policy, uh, what can policy do about them? And we are trying to, every time it's, it, it be both you know, pragmatic and optimist, which is we are trying to show why, where policy have, have, has gone wrong in the past and that usually it, when it has gone wrong is because of a misunderstanding of what the poor really were trying to do and what their real issues were. And so we are trying to put that back, try to bring back a correct understanding of how people make decisions and why they make the decision they make, and then and then take the conclusion from that and saying what is the right policy to really make progress in this domain. And it was a great experience writing the book because I realized that we know much more than maybe I realized that we had known, and we start getting a. I think we have in a lot of cases, a pretty hopeful message to give about what could be done, how we can do better. Now, regarding the John Bates Clark Medal, which you received last year, um, it gave you a lot of visibility. How are you putting it to, to use to kind of promote your work? How is that, how is that going? So part of the Part of the, my goal as a human being, rather than as a researcher, is to, you know, to make a difference. So in particular, with the, with the, the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, we are trying to make sure that the results of the research um, that has been carrying out is heard by policymakers, that they, can, they have access to those uh, results to make the decisions. But then they can decide whatever it is they want. And also that they have access to those methods to evaluate their program if they want them, if they want to evaluate them. So what I'm sort of using the visibility for, not in a very conscious way, it's not that I kind of go and say, hey, I have the Clark Medal, you need to listen to me. But what I'm, but I'm conscious of the fact that it does open some door and I'm using those, those doors to try and propose options uh, to policymakers saying we can work together in uh, very closely or you can just listen what I have to say or, or you can just ignore me and uh, uh, that allows us to do a bit more than than was possible before. Many many recipients of the of, of the John Bates Clark Medal went on to receive a Nobel Prize. How do you feel about that? Well, it's good for them. <laughs> I'm glad they did, but many many also didn't. And many people who didn't get a Clark Medal got a Nobel Prize. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Esther Duflo. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.